I, I apologize at the end of last service because I couldn't get my brain functioning during the message to put words together. So I'm just going to do it in advance. I'm going to confess that I broke my rule of not scheduling things on Saturday night before a work day, and I went to the Billy Joel concert last night. So I just, uh, I just want to confess up front. And uh, if you would like me to sing my favorite Billy Joel songs, just let me know. No, 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 no. Why did I say that? All right. So this, uh, this, week, I, uh, this week I read an email that began with these words. Our prayers have been answered. And as I read them, I was immediately struck with just this, this kind of sense, this feeling of uneasiness. Please don't understand, um, I believe that God answers prayers. In fact, you're sitting there going, yeah, if you didn't believe that, we've got a problem about leadership in this church, right? I believe that God answers prayers. I've said these words, God has answered my prayers, or God has answered our prayers. I have celebrated with some of you when you've, when you've felt like you've had answers to prayer, and yet... And yet I wonder sometimes, as followers of Jesus, if we don't need to be careful or really understand what we're saying when we talk about answered prayers or unanswered prayers. Do I only say that my prayers have been answered when I get my way? When God does what I want? Or, or are my prayers prayers answered even when it isn't what I want, when God does something unexpected or, or even something I didn't want to see happen. This is kind of an oversimplification of this question, but we could think about it this way. Let, uh, I know it's not football season, but imagine Notre Dame and Michigan are playing this coming weekend, and, and, uh, and there are fans for Notre Dame, and they are praying for Notre Dame to win this game, right? And there are fans from Michigan, and the Michigan fans are, uh, are praying for Michigan to win. So when the game is over and one team wins, does that mean that one side's prayers were better than the other? Does it mean one side's prayers were answered and the other wasn't? Some of you are Notre Dame fans and you're like, yeah, of course, it means our prayers were better. What are, you, what are you saying? Does it mean one side is more faithful than the other? Some of you also are sitting there right now going, does God even care about the outcome of a football game? So, so let's try another example. Let's say I'm praying for a loved one. Let's say I'm praying for my mom to get better. She's fine, by the way. But let's say my, my mom is not doing well, and, and I'm praying for her to get better. And let's say that a, a good friend of mine is praying for his mom to get better, also not doing well. And what if my mom just continues to have one complication after another, and his mom experiences healing, and, and life goes back to normal? Does that mean that, that my prayers weren't as good? Does that mean I don't have enough faith? We've talked about prayer being aligning ourselves with God's will and not bending God's will to our own, but I wonder if that means we should rethink how we, how we talk about 
answered and unanswered prayer because I'll be honest, as a pastor who has an opportunity to interact with people in the community, people who don't believe in, in Jesus or, or who aren't part of a church family, I worry sometimes that the way we celebrate answered prayers, particularly the way we celebrate answered prayers publicly, leaves those who continue to struggle or those who have prayed but didn't get the answer that they wanted or those who experience calamity despite their prayers or those who lose loved ones despite their prayers, asking this deep and difficult question like, where is God? I worry that it, the way we sometimes talk about answered prayers leaves those outside of the church thinking that if, if I am struggling, it means I don't have enough faith or I'm not good enough or God isn't there for me or God, even worse, God doesn't love me. That, that this becomes an important question, is God there and where is God? And how about for some of us, how, how many of you have ever prayed and felt like you didn't get an answer? Anybody ever prayed and felt like you didn't get an answer? Some of us here today. Have any of you ever wondered where God was when times were difficult? Like, where, where are you, God? We were talking in staff this week. I think one of the things we tend to do as, as people of faith is when we look back, we're like, oh, I know God was there. But in the moment, sometimes it's, it's harder. So this is our, our final question. All month at Clay Church, we've been... We've been examining prayer and asking questions about what it means to pray and what prayer looks like in our lives. And, and today, that is, is kind of our last question, and it's, God, where are you in the midst of our prayers? Each week, we've been searching Scripture. Today, we're going we're gonna to search Scripture and say, where is God when struggles continue or when hits keep on coming? Would you pray with me? God of grace and wisdom, we know that we, we just have these questions, God, and we're thankful that we can sit here today and ask them. And so we just pray in these moments as, as we hear your word that you, God, just widen our vision to get a glimpse of what you see. And Lord, just ex expand and open our minds to to better understand your way and your teaching. Just break open our hearts, God, in these moments and, and fill it with your love in Jesus Christ and remind us of an invitation to share that love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Any of you know the, the book, um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. It's a Judy Bloom book from, I think, the early 1970s, maybe, maybe written in 1970. It's interesting. It's, it's about this, uh, uh, this adolescent, and she is essentially about to go through puberty, and, and it's just a story of growing up. And it actually has been, it, there's been some controversy surrounding it, both kind of about its frankness um, and it, about how it portrays um, some parts of Christianity, and I've always found that interesting because I, as a book that shows this young woman wrestling with her identity and her relationship with God, I, there's, to me, so much that's kind of rich in that story, um, and some questions about how people see the, the church are important for us to ask. The book gets its title from the fact that 
Margaret is uh, growing up in a, in a, in a uh, household where her parents are of different faiths. I think her dad is Jewish and her mom is Christian. And she doesn't go to temple or church, uh, but she does have this relationship with God. And whenever she prays, she begins with, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And uh, this is just one example earlier in the book. She's like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. We're moving today. I'm so scared, God. I've never lived anywhere but here. Suppose I hate my new school. Suppose everybody there hates me. Please help me, God. Don't let New Jersey be too horrible. Thank you. Are you there, God? Where are you, God? Margaret is asking a question that traces back a long, long way. And as we think about that question, where are you, God, in our life of prayer, we're going to trace it all the way back to the book of Job. Now, some of you, some of you know a little bit about the book of Job, but just a, a little precursor to the, to the rest of the, of the story. Job is a character in the Bible. He's a righteous man before God. He has life together. He has a great relationship with God. He prays. He offers uh, sacrifices. He offers gifts. Um, he's just an all-around good guy, and he's blessed with wealth and prosperity and a big family. Everything is wonderful. And then the, the story tells us that in, in the heavens, in the heavenly court, Satan, and, and we need to be careful about, it, it says the Satan, and literally translated in the Hebrew, it's essentially like, think of the prosecuting attorney. It's the challenger. It's the person in the heavenly court. Um, so don't think evil. It's the person in the heavenly court who is, is there to challenge things, to make sure things are as they are. And so Satan comes to God and says, yeah, Job is, is righteous and great, but he won't be if he, if he wasn't blessed. And God allows that to happen. Now, there's another whole sermon there, and, and, uh, and every time I preach on Job, I'm like, I need two hours, uh, but you all don't want to sit here for two hours, so we're going to do the 20, 30, 40-minute version. Um, but, uh, but the story goes on, and Job, sure enough, he loses everything. All of his children die. He loses all of his, all of his wealth. He's left with, with just his wife. And, and he's sitting on the ashes, the ruins of his life. And he just begins to cry out to God. And this is where we find Job. In, in chapter 9, we're going to jump around a little bit. But Job chapter 9, verses 11 to 19, this is, this is Job just crying out in this midst of like living through hell, everything in his life is awful. And this is what he says, when he, meaning the Lord, meaning God, when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. 
If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Do you hear the the hurt and the pain in Job? He's just crying out. And as he cries out, he asks this question, I can't see you, God. I, I, I can't even perceive that you're there. He's not alone in that question. We're not alone in that question. The psalmist will say it again. And then in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and 34, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And Mark says this, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemas abaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we ask where God is, we're in good company. Jesus asked that question, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you let this happen when he was hanging on the cross? And God's humanist, God asks the same question. We're not alone when we ask, where are you, God? Margaret, in the story, there's this moment when she starts a project about her religious identity, and, and this is what she says in one of her prayers. She says, I've been looking for you, God. I looked in temple, I looked in church, and today I looked for you when I wanted to confess, but you weren't there. I didn't feel you at all. Not the way I do when I talked to you at night. I hope today if you're in a, in a place of struggle or if you know somebody who's in a place of struggle, you'll let them know that it's okay to ask this question. Where, where are you, God? But today we'll also notice that Job's story doesn't end there. There's much more to Job's story. Job's friends show up and they sit with them in silence for quite a while, the right thing to do. And then they open their mouths and try to justify what is happening to Job. Wrong thing to do. They should have stuck with the silence. They were better there. And they start to tell Job that it's his own fault, that, that obviously he has done something. And they try to rationalize with the pain that he is, is feeling and explain it away. And, and Job, Job continues to wrestle. And one of the things we see in Job, in the story of Job, is that Job begins this transformation. You remember when he started, he's like, I don't know where you are, God. I can't feel you. I can't see you. All I know is that, that you're a random and I am suffering because of it. But notice what happens as the friends begin to, begin to argue that he needs to understand God their way. Job, he just wants an audience with God, but he hangs on to his faith. This is what he says in response to some of his friends. He says, today my complaint is again bitter. He's still hurting. My strength is weighed down because of my groaning. Oh, that I could know how to find him, come to his dwelling place. He's still searching. 
I would lay out my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments, know the words with which he would answer, understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me through brute force? Listen to this next thing Job says. No, he would surely listen to me. Right? By continuing to, to hang on to, to his faith, by continuing to hang on to this relationship with God, Job moves from, where are you, God? I can't sense you. I, there's no chance. To this place that says, wait, the God I believe in will listen to me. The friends are saying otherwise. They're saying, no, no. You've caused this. You don't have any right to argue before God. But, but Job begins to say, no, the God I believe in is willing to hear me out. As a pastor, it pains me to see that, that, that somehow because of the way we've put our understanding of prayer and grace out there, that some people see suffering as a lack of faith. It pains me when somebody says, you know, I, I, bad things continue to happen, so obviously God doesn't love me. Or bad things continue to happen, so I must have done something to anger God. It just, that thought pains me. I've prayed and I've prayed and God's not there, so obviously God doesn't care about me. And I, I think that by celebrating an answer to prayer is getting what we want. When we sort of put out into the world, yeah, I, I'm blessed, and that's because God answered my prayer. The flip side of that is heard by others as, I'm not blessed, so God doesn't love me. We imply to too many people that not getting what you want is a lack of faith and righteousness. That's not how it works. And, and this is what happens next in, in Job's story. Another friend, Elihu, comes comes kind of parading in from nowhere in the story. We're, we're not exactly sure if this was a, a, a piece of the story added later or if Elihu is like just stalking the conversation like he's sitting at the table next to them and, uh, and then he, he overhears, like he's listening in and, and then he, he goes, oh, I, I have the answer for you all. You know, he's that guy. Um, you, should, you should listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. And then he says this. He says, tell us what she, we should say to him, meaning God or the Lord, we cannot draw up our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Would anyone ask to be swallowed up? Now no one can look at the sun, bright as it is in the skies, after the wind has swept them clean. Out of the north he comes in golden splendor. God comes in awesome majesty. The Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. In his justice and great righteousness he does not oppress Right? All of this that Elihu is saying is about God being wholly other and beyond what we can imagine, and, and that's all true. But then, then Elihu says, therefore people revere him, for does he not have regard for all the wise in heart? And as he says this, he sort of reemphasizes the sense that he's saying, Job, you can't reach God. God's not there to be reached. You can't do it. God doesn't want to have an audience with you. God, God's got bigger things, more important things than you. We live in a world, right, where we're used to instant answers. Right? We want things to happen right away. We, we go through the drive-thru and we order food and, uh, and, and we want 
it to be ready when we get to the next window. Right? We order things on Amazon and it, it arrives the next day. I think sometimes we even, we even think, you know, something's wrong and the doctor should just diagnose it tomorrow. But, but the reality is the world and particularly our life of faith, it, it doesn't work that way. We're not in control. So the question becomes, so does, does not getting what we want or not getting an immediate answer mean that God isn't present? That God doesn't care? And today we gather and we hear from this biblical witness, no. No, that, that we need a better understanding of prayer. Prayer isn't praying for what I want and then knowing that no matter what, I'm going to get it. Prayer is actually much richer than that. In a parallel to what's happening in Job is, is the book of Lamentations. We don't preach on Lamentations much. I don't know why, maybe because it's all lament and it's kind of sad. Um, we don't preach on Lamentations a lot, but Lamentations has this sort of parallel to Job and that the author is just lamenting all that's wrong with the world all the terrible things happening. There's this great line in Lamentations 3, starting at 19. It says this, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Right? Again, remembering all the pain, all the difficulty. Then it says this, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. And then it goes on, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. You hear that move as Job did? From the, from the pain to knowing that God promises to be present even in the suffering, even in the pain, and to wait quietly because God promises deliverance. God does not promise that there won't be suffering and hurt in our world. God does not promise that if we just pray hard enough, the suffering and the hurt and the pain will go away. What God does promise is to be present we gather here, and I pray, that, I pray today that if you haven't sort of accepted this truth, if you haven't claimed this truth for yourself, we gather here today because Jesus died on a cross so that, so that we would know that God understands the pain and the struggle and that God showed us how to hang on to the promise that that pain and that suffering ultimately doesn't have to define us, that God's love has power even over death. 
It doesn't mean the suffering will go away. It means that we can hang on to this rope, this thread of love and grace in Jesus and let it pull us through even the toughest and the worst times in our life. It doesn't mean we won't be sad. It doesn't mean we won't grieve. But it means we hang on to a promise that life lies ahead. And God says all you have to do to know this promise is claim it in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For Job, for Job, he hangs on to that promise, right? He moves from, God, where are you, to, to God, if I could just have an audience because I know you'll listen to me. And then at the end of the book of Job, there are two pieces to the ending. And I hope, I hope you'll go home uh, this week and read the book of Job. The circle guides, the sermon circle guides, which you'll find online, have some questions to help you read it. There's a lot there and it can be heavy, but if you, if you read it with some tools, there's some really rich things to think about. And one of those is how Job ends. And there are kind of two endings to Job. I'm going to invite you as you read it to pay a lot of attention to the first one. And actually, I'm going to invite you to ignore the second ending. Uh, and here's why. I'll explain why. The first ending in Job is, uh, is that God appears to Job. As he continues to wrestle and he continues to struggle, finally he gets this audience. He just comes to know God's presence. And at the very end of that, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. And it's an interesting, in the Hebrew, there, there's lots of study about what that means. But, but I love that uh, a couple of the rabbis point out that essentially it means that, that Job accepts his humanity. He's like, I'm not God. I can't control everything. But I do, as a human being created in the image of God, I do have the right to have a conversation with God, and God knows me, and God loves me, and God is ultimately going to see me through. I repent in dust and ashes. I own that I am human, and I own that I am part of a divine story that ends in love and grace. Now, the second ending, this is the part that I want you to ignore. Um, uh, there's a, a section at the end where Job gets everything back. And, uh, uh, and I spent a semester with Job in, in college, as I mentioned, and or in seminary. And, um, and I read and read, and lots of scholars say that this, this ending was tacked on to the end. It changes in tone. It changes in voice. And I just have this sense that somebody needed a Disney ending and so they said, oh, and, and Job got rich and had more children and lived happily ever after. But I, we don't need it. We don't need that part of the ending. Uh, in part because it's not always true for us. Instead, I think, I think the richness of Job ends at that moment when his prayer is answered not in the suffering going away. It doesn't bring back his family from the dead. But it says God is with you. God is present. God was listening. I believe that prayer has power, right? But, but sometimes I think we mislabel that power. I think prayer has the power to pull us through the most difficult times in life. I think prayer has power to show us the, the gift of life, even when everything seems turned against us. I think prayer has power to align us with God's will and invite us, no matter how hard our lives are, to participate in the goodness of God in the world. Prayer awakens us to God's presence, even in the tumultuous times. 
This is the power of prayer. I, I like to think of prayer sometimes as, it's like, we take this with you, it's like a divine key. When you feel like you're just locked off from the goodness of the world, pull out prayer as your divine key and open that door and know that, that God is there. Just waiting for you to open the door and recognize that God's been knocking on that door. Jesus has been knocking on that door the whole time. Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. It ends with, uh, with Margaret. She's had this moment, this time in her life, family strife and arguments, and, and she just she kind of gives up on God and she stops talking to God. But then near the end, she says this, are you still there, God? It's me, Margaret. I know you're there, God. I know you wouldn't have missed this for anything. Thank you, God. Thanks an awful lot. When you're feeling alone or overwhelmed or scared or just in the midst of a struggle and you can't see the other side, when you're not sure that God is with you, this prayer is a good place to start. Thank you, God, for being here. And you could back up a couple steps in your prayer life and start with, God, where are you? Because it's okay to ask that question. And then keep praying. Because as you keep praying to a God who promises to be there, God will begin to, God will begin to, to show God's self to you. You can begin to voice your heart and your struggles and what's going on in your life. And then just say, thank you, God for being present. Thanks an awful lot. Amen.